0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston,
1: Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible
0: lesson. Okay, we need to continue to pray for Ulan. He is in Berlin, as I announced last week, and we're still working to arrange uh, legal counsel and other details. Uh, the situation is far from resolved, and every day, trust me, every day presents a new scenario. <laughs> and this afternoon, we thought we had everything resolved. Well, three hours later, it's a whole new ballgame. So just, uh, uh, it's a test. It's only a test, and life is an open book test, right? Also, I want to remind you that there, will, there is the Conservative Theological Society meeting, ...that is uh, hosted by Tyndale Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. The dates are August 1st through 3rd. That's a Monday through Wednesday. The subject is eschatology. Uh, Charlie Clough will be speaking. Wayne House will be speaking. Those are the two uh, main speakers who each have uh, about three hours each. Uh, if you, I think there's some brochures down here on the table. There is a minor revision... The location listed in the brochure is the Biblical Arts Center in Dallas, Texas. The Biblical Arts Center burned to the ground last week, so the uh, conference has been relocated to Grace Bible Church, Fort Worth, which is located in the southeast section of Fort Worth uh, across the street from where Tyndale uh, Seminary has their offices. So that is uh, that announcement. Anything else I need to cover? Okay, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, in fellowship, ready to be filled by the Spirit with the teaching of His Word under His uh, teaching, ministry, and guidance. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the freedom and privilege that we have to gather together this evening to study your word. We pray that you would uh, help us to understand the things that we study, that we might have a greater perspective on your plan for history, your plan for Israel, and how you are working these things out down through the corridors of time. Father, we also remember Ulan and his situation and pray that you would give wisdom to those who are advising him and that you would just continue to uh, make his paths straight. Father, now we pray for this church as well as we look at various places to meet in terms of a long range location. We pray that you would guide and direct us. Now, Father, we ask that you would guide and direct us in our study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in Genesis chapter 17, so open your Bibles to that chapter. As I pointed out last time, Genesis 17 along with Genesis chapter 15, are the two critical chapters related to the Abrahamic covenant. It is foreshadowed, of course, by the statements in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, but the ceremony of the actual cutting of the covenant, where the contract is established in that unilateral uh, setting of Genesis chapter 15, is crucial that's when it is enacted and as i pointed out last time that is comparable to what we call in the church age positional truth it was a unilateral covenant in that only god passed between the parts of the animals in that particular sacrifice now when we come to our passage in genesis 17 there seems to be something a little different there are some mandates in this chapter, related to the Abrahamic covenant, and if you 're not careful some people as some people aren 't, you would come to the conclusion that this makes the covenant conditional. it doesn 't make the covenant conditional, it makes the experience of the blessings of the covenant related to obedience, and that 's always true in uh, the Christian life now, last time let me see if I can get back to our proper slideshow. Well, where did it go? Didn't get started. Last time we looked at the literary structure of Genesis 17. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time here, so if you weren't here last time, you'll have to get the video to catch the slide. But I want to make sure you understand what uh, we are going to talk about this evening. The structure follows what's called the chiasm. So it begins with Abram, indicates his age at 99. The Lord appears to him and begins to speak to him. We have the Lord's first speech. Then Abraham falls on his face. Then there's a second speech, which is when his name is changed from Abram to Abraham, and God makes promises regarding nations and kings coming from him. Then we have the third speech, which is in verses nine through 14, and that's at the center of the chapter. And then we have a fourth speech, which is the name change of Sarai to Sarah. We have Abram falling on his face again. then there's a fifth speech. Uh, from God, and then God ceases speaking. God leaves Abraham, and Abraham is once again stated to be 99 years of age in Ishmael 13. This is what's called a chiastic structure. It follows a pattern like the Greek letter uh, chi is how we pronounce it now, but it used to be pronounced chi, so they called it chiasm or chiasmus in the Latin, and it represents the left side of an X. And it points to the centerpiece. Now, what's important about this is in the ancient world, you didn't have certain features that we have today, such as boldface or italics or things like that, to emphasize certain things. So they use literary structure, uh, much as an artist would use a frame to draw your attention To the main thing that he is talking about. And the centerpiece of this chapter is God's instructions to Abraham regarding circumcision. Now, you all know how much I love visuals. Well, we're not going to have any visuals tonight. Don't worry. Genesis 17:1 we began last time when Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him I am El Shaddai literally walk before me and be blameless so there is a mandate for the spiritual life of Abram that is related to the covenant uh that related to God's reiteration of the covenant the term El Shaddai as I pointed out last time has had Various interpretations over the ages following the Septuagint It's usually translated uh, Almighty God Although that translation is doubted by uh, most scholars It probably has the idea of sufficiency That's the main concept there The total sufficiency of God Because of his power he is completely able to resolve any situation we face in life Abram is commanded to walk before God And this is not walking with God as per Enoch and Noah But walking in front of God as one almost who announces that God is coming He is one who proclaims God And he is to walk before God and he is to be blameless Now this is a poor translation because it implies Perfection. There is no perfection in the Christian life. If you've been a Christian for more than two or three years, you're probably aware of that. But there's always a few groups that come along and teach Christian perfectionism. The sin nature is the same the minute after you're saved as it was the minute before you were saved. Its tyrannical power is broken, but its presence and capacity is nevertheless the same. So it shouldn't be translated, these words, tamim in the Hebrew and telea'o, that whole word group in the Greek, should not be translated with the idea of flawlessness or blamelessness or perfection, but the idea of being complete, whole, or mature. Complete, whole, or mature. I am El Shaddai, go before me and be mature. The emphasis on God's, God's sufficient grace is reiterated in the New Testament, of course, Second Corinthians 12.9. My grace is made perfect. There's that same word in the Greek now, it's teleao. My grace is brought to completion or given its fullest expression in weakness. So this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of God's grace. Now, all of that we covered last time, so we'll get into some new ground this evening. Genesis 17.2 And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. This is God's God speaking, His first speech, and He is reaffirming the covenant that He has already made with Abraham back in chapter 15. It doesn't change, so there's, he's not adding anything to it He may be developing it, but he's not contradicting anything that he has already said He will make that covenant So let's look at the elements Remember there's three key elements in the Abrahamic covenant Everybody should be able to recite them by now You don't have to, but it's land, seed, and blessing You should be saying that in your sleep by now Land, seed, and blessing Genesis 12:1 through 3 promises a land, promises descendants, and promises a worldwide or universal blessing to Abraham. Point number 2, Genesis 12:7 reiterated the land promise. Genesis 13:5 expanded on it to Abraham and said that you can have all the land that you see. Then in Genesis 15.8 That is expanded And specific borders are given From the river of Egypt Which is understood to be the body El Arish down on the border With Egypt to the river Euphrates And then in Genesis 17.8 It is further defined as the whole Land of Canaan See how there is progressive revelation Regarding to the land Promise Then we have the promise of a seed or descendants. The descendants are said to be a great nation in 12.2. In 13.16 they're described as being as numerous as the dust of the earth. In Genesis 15.5 God says the descendants will be like the stars in the sky. In Genesis 16 they're said to be innumerable and then in genesis 17 they will be it will be expanded even more to refer to a multitude of nations not just israel but from abraham will come a multitude of nations kings will be descended from you so we have land we have seed and then we have the third element which is god's blessing on abraham and his descendants this is uh, expressed In terms of divine protection Those who bless you I will bless Those who curse you I will curse So in 12.2 that is God promises to curse those who treat Abram lightly In Genesis 15 he warns that his descendants will be taken into slavery For 450 years but they will be delivered And they will return to this land that God has promised in Genesis seventeen 7, and we'll see this evening, it is stated to be an eternal promise. The land is theirs in perpetuity, and God will protect them in perpetuity, and God will always be their God. Now, one point of application from this is that if God went back on this promise to, to, the, to the Jews, and if because of their rejection of the Messiah they are no longer to be the literal heirs of this promise, which is what replacement theology, covenant theology teaches, then there's no security for Israel in God's promise. And if there's no security in Israel for God's promise, then there's no security for you in God's promise of eternal salvation. And what happens in these other systems, even though they affirm eternal security at times, they have a system that at its very core has a God who goes back on his promises because of human disobedience. So we have to be very careful uh, how we treat this. This is an eternal covenant that God does not go back on even though a man is disobedient. We call this a unilateral covenant. That is, it is God who establishes the covenant with Abraham, and it is not based on who Abraham is or what he does. Now, the experience of the blessings is dependent upon covenant obedience. But that refers to the experiential aspect. The reality, the title deed to the land, the reality of the covenant is eternal and can never be lost. God has not yet fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant, and therefore it must be fulfilled in the future. And this means that God has a plan for Israel as a nation. In the future Now Genesis seventeen three We see Abram's response He falls on his face And God speaks to him a second time Saying As for me, behold my covenant My contract is with you And you shall be a father Of many nations This is the expansion now Of the seed promise There will be many nations That come from Abraham Furthermore, he is going to establish this by changing Abraham's name. A name change in the ancient world always indicated a change of position, a change of blessing, a change of of, of priority. So Abraham is being put in a new position by this name change. Verse 5 reads, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Uh, Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Now, at the bottom of the slide, I've indicated the two names uh, transliterated from Hebrew. Avram, it's a soft B, so it's uh, pronounced like a V. Avram means exalted father. From the Hebrew word Av, meaning father, and Ram, meaning exalted or lifted up. Now, that word probably refers to Abram's own father, Terah, signifying that this child that Terah Terah names is exalted with respect to his father. The father is naming the child in such a way that it reflects the father's own uh, prestige. So this would indicate that, along with Abram's wealth and other factors, that Abram was born into an aristocratic lineage, and he has an extremely wealthy family and background. So Avram has more to do with Abram's background and Abram's father than it does with God's plan for Abram. His name is literally Avhamon. Now you look at that and you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't look like Avraham. No, it doesn't. This is what happens in what, what we call popular etymologies for names. Uh, through the Bible, the names don't actually mean in a dictionary sense often what the scripture says. They sound that way. The Holy Spirit loves paranymasias or puns. And often that's what these names are. is It's a play on words. So the two Hebrew words, Av for father and Hamon, meaning many nations or a multiplicity of nations, sounds like Abraham. So when you hear Abraham, you should think of Avhamon, the father of many nations. And so this, again, reconfirms God's promise to Abraham that he will do all that he has said he will do. To give a name expresses God's sovereignty over the individual, and it reflects a change of circumstance now for Abraham, and it reflects A new position in God's plan God goes on to promise other things to Abraham in verse 6 He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful We've seen that his descendants will be like the stars of the sky Like the sands of the seashore But now he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful And I will make nations of you Not just the nation Israel But from Abraham will come nations who are descendants through Ishmael, uh, nations who are descendants through Esau, nations that are descendants through other progeny that are not in the line of the seed. The line of the seed is the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the only three with whom God confirmed the covenant. So everyone else is outside that line, even though they may come from Abraham, it doesn't mean they're Jewish. You're only Jewish, you're only a Jew, if you have that physical descent through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we have a reiteration of the covenant. Let's just get a summation of it rather than going through all the the verses. First of all, in verse 4, God says, My covenant... Is with you. It is a reaffirmation of that contract initially given in chapter 15. Second, he says to Abraham, you shall be the father of many nations. This is a new dimension to the covenant. You shall be the father of many nations. Third, he gives him a new name, Abraham. So Abraham is a name that is specifically related to this covenant. It is not just God saying, well, I like this name better. But it indicates God's promise to Abraham and his future destiny. Fourth, he says you will be exceedingly fruitful. Exceedingly fruitful. There will be a multiplicity of descendants in verse 6. Fifth, he expands that to mean nations and kings will come from you. Sixth, he says, the covenant will be a perpetual covenant. That is verse 7. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. It's not temporary. It's not temporal. It will last until the end of time. God says, this is your perpetual title deed to the property. And the point is that all Jews from Abraham down have a title deed to the land of Canaan, even though there will be times in their history they don't dwell there. There will be times in their history they don't control the land. There were times when they were out of the land, for example, those 450 years when they were in Egypt. There would be another time when they were out of the land, although there were still some Jews who lived there. They would be out of the land for 70 years during the, what is called the Babylonian captivity. And then they would be out of the land from A.D. 70 until, the, until 1948. But they were out of the land only as a political entity there was always a remnant of Jews that lived in Israel, lived in Jerusalem. There was always a Jewish population there. They were never removed exclusively and totally, but their sovereignty, their control of the land, uh, Israel as a political entity was removed in A.D. 70 and then uh, finally after the Bar Kokhba revolt in A.D. 125. But even though they're out of the land, they still have a title to the land. That is theirs by divine gift, and its foundation is Abraham. That's why the Abrahamic Covenant is so crucial. The Abrahamic Covenant really gives us the lens to understand all of history. It's that framework for being able to interpret, interpret everything that goes on in the Middle East down through the ages for the last 4,000 years. And the seventh aspect of the reiteration of the covenant is that the covenant would include perpetual possession of the land of Canaan. The Canaanites are not the ancestors of the Philistines, by the way. That is the modern myth that the Palestinians are really the descendants of the Philistines. There seems to be a... Uh, a certain similarity in the two words, Philistine and Palestine, but they're not related to the same uh, word group at all. There's no etymological relationship. In fact, uh, Randy Price in his book, Unholy War, did a masterful job of tracing the etymology, and the Greeks called it Palestine. They were the first to use that term, and they based the word on a Greek word, palat, P A L A I O O, Pale A O, which refers to a wrestler. A wrestler. See, they liked puns, just like the Holy Spirit. See, and you thought you didn't have a very sophisticated sense of humor because you liked puns. Well, the Greeks loved puns. And remember, there were those twin boys. And the first one that came out was Esau, and the second one was Jacob. And what was he doing? He was a heel grabber. He was, and then later on, he wrestled with the angel at a place called Penuel in the Hebrew. And uh, that wrestling with the angel is where they get this idea of uh, Palao. So they called it Palestine, and it was a wordplay on Jacob, or Jacob's other name was what? Israel so it was a word play on that it didn't have anything at all to do with the philistines that's just a another myth about the legitimacy of the palestinian people they're not a people at all they're made up of the descendants of a vast number of of immigrant workers that were brought into that part of the world under the Ottoman Empire at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. And it's a tragedy of history that our nation even recognizes them as a legitimate people. There's no such thing, no such animal. And once again, it just reflects both the ignorance of history and the ignorance of biblical truth. Now we come to verse 7. Again, God speaks. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations. It will be everlasting. In verse 8, also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan. So we get the specificity of the land that God has promised. The land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. The future tense indicates not only I am the God now, but I will be in the future. So that even if they go through a period of time when they reject me as their God, there is an implicit promise here that I will be in the future and they will have an eternal possession of the land. Since that hasn't happened, since the Jews have never controlled all of the land that was promised by God, we know that it must yet be future. And so there will be a time in the future when they return to the land as a political entity and will control all of that land that God promised. And that won't happen until Jesus Christ returns as the Messiah, the greater son of David, and establishes his kingdom and establishes the throne of David at that particular time. Now we come to the core or the heart of the chapter, verses 9 down through 16. Or 14, 9 through 14 And God speaks for this third time God said to Abram, Abraham is for you You shall keep my covenant You and your descendants after you Throughout their generations So the keeping of the covenant Is an obligation Even though the covenant's a free gift Even though the covenant is Irreversible, even though the covenant is unilateral, even though there's nothing they can do to destroy the covenant, there is an inherent obligation to morally follow the stipulations of the covenant and to walk in obedience to God. Same thing is true when we come into the Christian life. We have salvation, it is a free gift. Nevertheless, with that Salvation with the privilege and position that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ There comes an obligation to walk in obedience That's why we have these mandates throughout the New Testament To walk in a manner worthy of God's love We're not trying to earn His approbation We're not trying to earn salvation It's not a threat that if we don't we'll lose our salvation It is that we have been given this marvelous, incredible gift Of salvation with all these tremendous blessings and spiritual assets that God's provided for us. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have all the promises of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. All of these things God has given to us, and there is an inherent obligation to grow in the knowledge, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as a result of what God has given us as an expression of gratitude. So Abraham is told to keep my covenant, you and your descendants, throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant, what you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Now what I want to do is read through these key verses, these core verses, and then we'll come back and summarize it. Uh, between me and you and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised. So this is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Every male descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shall be circumcised. And this is an indication that they are set apart to God. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse twelve: He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or brought, are bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. In other words, it applies to all the physical descendants as well as the slaves that are brought into uh, your house. Verse thirteen. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Okay, let's summarize these verses, 9 through 13. Point number one, God says, You and your descendants, all your descendants, shall keep my covenant. That's the command. Verse 9, it's not a condition for making the covenant, But it is an obligation that God puts on those who have been given the covenant. Point number two the covenant is to be kept. The covenant to be kept is that every male child shall be circumcised. According to the Jews, this is a separate covenant. It's called the covenant of circumcision. The Hebrew word for uh, covenant uh, or for circumcised, the verb, is mul, and the noun is mulah. Circumcision, and that's only used one time, and that's over in Exodus when Moses has to be circumcised. Third thing we learn is that circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, not every covenant has a sign, but several covenants do have signs. The sign of the Noahu covenant is the rainbow, the sign for the Abrahamic covenant is Circumcision, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, is the Sabbath. Since the Mosaic Covenant was only for the nation Israel, and the Mosaic Covenant, according to Hebrews 8, was a temporary covenant and was replaced by the new covenant, we no longer observe the Sabbath. It is outdated, outmoded. It was rendered uh, ineffective as a result of Christ's completed work on the cross. So circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It is a sign that you have been, as a Jew, set apart by God. That's a key word to understand here, is it sets the nation apart through this physical symbol. And it is a a physical rite that pictures a spiritual reality, as we'll see. So circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Fourth, we see that it's to be performed on the eighth day God is specific It's supposed to be performed on the eighth day Not the seventh day or the ninth day One of the interesting things about that Is that it's considered so important That it overrides the sabbatical laws And all of the laws in Judaism Related to the special feast days Or even Yom Kippur If the eighth day is on a Sabbath If the eighth day is on Yom Kippur you will still be circumcised on that day. It overrides everything else. The ritual in Judaism is performed in the daytime, not at night, and it's at the home of the child. Usually in the modern observance, guests are usually present to celebrate the event. They share a meal together called the seudat mitzvah, which means a feast entailed by a commandment. And the only reason you don't circumcise a male child is if there's some health reasons that uh, would make that uh, impossible. It's always performed the eighth day. The fifth thing we learn from this passage is that circumcision is for any physical Jew or for any foreign slave living in the household because this is the nation. And the picture here is that the nation is being set apart. To God. Now there's a specific imagery that is utilized here. It's the flesh of the foreskin that's removed. The flesh is a picture of the sin nature. And it is a picture, remember I said the Abrahamic covenant is to Israel, like positional truth is for the church age believer. The Mosaic Law comes after Israel's salvation, telling a redeemed people how to live. So the Mosaic Law doesn't have anything to do with picturing salvation. It pictures sanctification. So the picture of positional truth is that we are set apart positionally from sin. We are... Uh, made holy, positional sanctification So that's what's going on here Is the picture uh, positionally Is that the Jews are being set apart from the flesh Set apart for the service of God That is why it is applied to everyone Who is physically a Jew Or is, own, is an owned slave If you're a visitor Or if you're not owned by anybody You're just a Gentile living there Then it's not incumbent upon you Sixth we learn that it's a perpetual covenant It is tied to the Abrahamic covenant Which is still in effect So this was not to be uh, rendered obsolete By the replacement of another covenant for a Jew Now that may raise some questions Remember this isn't salvation In the New Testament you do have a problem With Judaizers who tried to make Gentiles Get circumcised So that they would be part of the blessing of Abraham But they missed the whole point And that was that by By uh, spiritual circumcision, which occurs at salvation, they were set apart unto God, and so there was no need for a physical uh, rite to be performed. Seventh point, the penalty for the uncircumcised is that they were to be removed from the people. If they weren't circumcised, they were removed completely from the people, indicating that they weren't participating in the positional blessings of the covenant. Eighth point. Circumcision, thus, is a physical ritual that represents the descendants of Abraham as set apart to God. They are set apart to the service of God for a distinct Plan and distinct purpose Then let's go to verse 14 And there God says And the uncircumcised male child Who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin That person shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant Positionally he has refused to be a part of the covenant now, let's summarize all this under 13 quick points on the doctrine of circumcision. We'll fly through this. The first mention of circumcision is here in Genesis 17. That's the first mention in Scripture. Secondly, we have to recognize that historically the surgical removal of the prepus, of the male sexual organ, was practiced in the ancient Near East before Abraham. But in Egypt and other cultures, it was a rite performed at puberty, not at birth. What made it distinct for the Jews was it was was performed at birth because at the time of birth you were set apart to God. Now, there was a reason it was on the eighth day. I passed over this a minute ago, but there's a reason it was done on the eighth day, and that was probably to give the the blood the time to develop its uh, its, uh, properties to properly coagulate so there wouldn't be excessive bleeding so it was performed at birth indicating every member of the na- every member of the nation was set apart unto God third point why males only other than the obvious only males were involved because it was through the male that the sin nature was passed down it's through the male that sin entered into human history and it is Uh, through the male, that the sin nature is passed down. So the symbolism here represents being set apart from sin. Fourth point, God revealed to Abraham that this act of shedding blood was to be a sign of the unilateral covenant between God and Abraham. That's fascinating. There's a shedding of blood that takes place, and this, of course, has uh, imagery that, ultimately goes to the cross and the blood of Christ, which, of course, is a, a picture of his spiritual substitutionary death. In Judaism, if you are an adult male that converts to Judaism, if you've already been circumcised, then there is a uh, minor operation that causes a drop of blood to flow so that you still go through that bloodletting as a sign of the covenant. Fifth point, the act at birth signifies the spiritual truth that at regeneration, the believer is positionally separated from the flesh, that is, the sin nature. It is at that salvation that we are regenerate and we are freed from the what? The power of sin. Not the presence of sin, but the power of sin. Deuteronomy 10.16 recognizes this principle in the Old Testament. Moses said, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. See, it's not the physical circumcision, but it is the spiritual circumcision. The, c- circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And that particular passage, passage the issue was that God is commanding them to be set apart to Him, In reality, not just physically, not just in ritual, but in reality. They were to be set apart to serve Him. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we read, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is post-salvation experiential growth. So you have... Positional aspects related to circumcision But then you have experiential aspects It represents both Sixth point Under legalism in Israel The significance uh, became the symbol or the ritual itself Not the spiritual reality that it signified So what became important is that you were circumcised in the flesh But not in the heart This is something that is completely challenged by the prophets, the latter prophets in the Old Testament. Point number seven, the latter prophets condemned Israel for this superficial legalism. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, Jeremiah says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. What's the idea? Be be saved, be positionally sanctified experientially sanctified. Jeremiah 9:25 and 26, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. That is, just because you're a Jew and circumcised doesn't mean you're, you're part of the covenant. Regeneration has to be there. There has to be that circumcision of the heart. And then there's a list of various Gentile nations in verse 26, and they're referred to as uncircumcised nations. Notice, the uncircumcised nations are uncircumcised physically. And in the last phrase, all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. Then, point number eight, in Deuteronomy 30, verse six, there's a suggestion that there is both a positional and an experiential element to the symbolism. The believer is positionally separated from the sin nature at the instant of salvation. Uh, The flesh at salvation And he's experientially separated Through spiritual growth As we go from Phase one into phase two Ninth point Therefore true circumcision Was a spiritual reality Not physical surgery The point wasn't that you had The physical surgery The point was That was to represent A spiritual reality Point ten, circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant and has no spiritual value other than symbolic. It doesn't mean that you're saved or not saved. It doesn't mean you're more spiritual or less spiritual. And it has no relevance to the church-age believer. This was a problem in the early church. Point number eleven references that. In the early church, those who did not understand the distinction between Israel and the church... Insisted that Gentiles get circumcised in order to be saved We see this in passages such as Acts 15.1 Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses You cannot be saved But remember circumcision isn't Mosaic, it's Abrahamic Paul had to deal with this in Galatians 5, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. See, that was the problem with the Galatians. The Judaizers were coming along and saying, grace is great, but you've got to have a little more. If you really want the full, four-square spiritual life, you have to be circumcised also. And so Paul is saying, if you're going to add works to grace... Christ will be of no profit to you You might be saved but you're destroying your spiritual life and spiritual growth And in verse 3 he says I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised That he is a debtor to keep the whole law In other words if you're going to try to obey any part of the law For salvation blessing or sanctification blessing Then you have to obey the whole law for salvation or sanctification blessing Point number 12, for the church-age believer, therefore, the reality is the spiritual significance, not the physical act. There is a spiritual circumcision today that is for every believer. This is in Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Thus, in the church-age... This spiritual circumcision represents retroactive positional truth What happened at the instant of salvation is you are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the cross That's in Romans 6, 1 through 7 And because of that, the power of the sin nature is broken at the instant of salvation So we represent it this way You have eternal realities and temporal realities On the left side, we have a white circle indicating that we are now identified with Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is our position in Christ. However, there is another dimension to our spiritual life, and that's our temporal walk. Uh, We call that being filled by means of the Holy Spirit, as well as walking by means of the Spirit, and that is experiential truth. So at the instant of salvation, we are positionally circumcised. It's that separation from the power of the sin nature. But we only realize it experientially as we learn the Word of God, apply it on a consistent basis. At times we fail, which means we confess our sins. When we fail, we're out of fellowship. We confess our sins, and we are restored to fellowship to continue that spiritual advance. So when we come to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, we realize that this is a picture of Israel's positional sanctification in the Old Testament, something that can never be lost. They're, they have a position in Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean every Jew is saved. That means the nation has a position in Abraham that can never be lost. And those promises given to Abraham will be fulfilled At some point in the future. Now, I hurried through that a little bit at the end, and uh, that's for a purpose because we have a special speaker, and Jim Myers is here tonight. He has just returned from uh, Zambia in Africa, and I have asked him to give us a report on his trip to Zambia and other things that are going on related to his ministry. So I'm going to briefly close in prayer to close out the tape and then uh, give them an opportunity to switch discs quickly to get Jim on film, and he'll come up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, for your grace, for the way you work through Abraham, and the way this pictures for us, the abstract truths of our positional uh, sanctification, our, identif- our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the uh, Breaking the power of the sin nature in our life And it's also a picture of our experiential sanctification Now Father we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening We pray this in Christ's name, Amen
1: It's good to be back Um, We've been very busy since last I was here And uh, the, the Lord has given us many opportunities to take the word of God to several different countries, and our focus in our ministry is to train people for ministry, primarily to train pastors, teachers, evangelists, and missionaries. And as I have traveled in many different places, more and more I realize how desperate is the need to have trained men for ministry. So many places I go, they have men who are in the pastorate. And they've had no training, and I mean none at all. In some places they've had training, but it's been bad. And it's really sad to see in so many places how pitiful the teaching is. But in many places I go, it's not because they're negative toward doctrine. They're not negative toward the Word of God. They just haven't been taught. And if they had someone to teach them, they would willingly receive it and pass it on. And so... I really believe that the Lord has been using us to challenge men with regard to studying the Word of God and getting training so that they can uh, teach the truth to their people. So uh, I go to Kazakhstan about once a year and teach among the Kazakh people there. And uh, this is really interesting because... Uh, As they say there, to be Kazakh is to be Muslim, and to be Russian is to be Christian. Of course, they don't understand what they're saying when they say that, but uh, among the Kazakh people, there haven't been very many missionaries. And uh, for me to go there and try to evangelize Kazakhs, that doesn't work. But those who have become Christians are very zealous for their own people. And I have found that the Kazakh Christians are very open to the Word of God. They're very teachable. Uh, But there aren't many ministries that are actually focusing on Kazakh uh, nationals, uh, the racial Kazakhs. Uh, It's kind of an interesting uh, situation in the country of Kazakhstan. Only about 42% of the population is Kazakh. 45% are Russians. And uh, So a lot of people say, we we go to Kazakhstan, but they're not ministering to the Kazakhs, they're ministering to Russian people who live there. But I've been able to go there for the past several years to teach in some Bible schools and in some churches, and uh, slowly we see some progress there among those who are pastors. Uh, This past year I was able to... Also begin ministry in a country that is next to Ukraine, a tiny country called Moldova. And it was very interesting that I went there and I found a seminary that is dispensational. And uh, they invited me to come and teach. They've invited me to come back again this fall. And so that's really just opening uh, a new area of ministry for us. I've also uh, gone to Brazil for the past several years to teach with Tim Lipsy, who's a missionary there. And uh, this also is exciting uh, to go and uh, challenge the pastors and churches there with regard to teaching the Word. Uh, But we uh, have our primary focus, of course, in the Ukraine. And we have there uh, uh, the Word of God Church which is the training ground for those who are studying with us in our Bible college. And we hope that this is going to be a model church for those who come and study with us, that they can see how things are done in a local church. And I must say we are unique among churches uh, in Ukraine in our focus on teaching the Word of God and the, the emphasis that we have Uh, not on uh, building large churches and having a lot of uh, programs and excitement, uh, but rather just focusing on teaching the Word of God. And we also have the Bible College there. It's small, and yet uh, we are beginning to see results after a few years of having this Bible College. Already we've planted some churches around Ukraine. We have men who have gone out from us who are now serving as pastors or serving as missionaries. And uh, this is really exciting to see the fruit of the uh, labors. Anyway, this is uh, only a part of the picture. I don't know where uh, the rest of it is. But anyway, this was from our church in uh, Kiev. These are uh, four men who just graduated from our Bible college, and they're all going to be involved in... Uh, ministry. Now, uh, we just got back from uh, Zambia, Dick Mills and I, and uh, this is uh, the pastor that we have been working with in Zambia. His name is Stuart, and uh, he's heading up a, a ministry there called Redemption Evangelistic Ministries, and there are some three dozen pastors that uh, are part of this Redemption Ministries. But the men who are there have had virtually no Bible training, if they've had any at all. And yet they're out there. They, they want to teach the Word of God. They want to pastor churches. They, they have a desire to do this, but they don't know how to do it. They just haven't had the training. And so uh, I've been trying to instill this idea in Stuart. And uh, so we're working with him right now to provide training uh, for men who are pastoring out in village areas uh, Some of you know that we uh, drilled some wells there uh, this year The reason why is water, clean water in Africa is a very rare commodity And uh, this is the well on uh, in Stewart's area And people go down there with a bucket and they throw it down in this hole And they haul it up in a bucket, and then they may have to carry it a couple of miles to, <clears throat> to where they're living. And, of course, water is very heavy. The water is dirty, but that's what people drink. And so we have uh, provided some wells for them in that area, and it's a tremendous blessing for the people uh, in that area to be able to uh, go and get clean water uh, because they drink this dirty water. They have a lot of diseases because of it. Uh, So they'll go and they'll fill up these jerry cans and uh, carry them back to where they live. What was interesting this last trip that uh, we just came back from is that I met this man and his wife. His name is Jack Can-Do. I like that name, Can-Do. And uh, his wife's name is Gift. And he is a bishop in the... Church of God in Zambia. And uh, he is the Christian education director for all of Central Africa for the Church of God. And this includes Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Angola, Mali, Malawi, I don't know, several countries around there. So he has a very responsible position. And I met this man And he asked if I would preach in his church and I accepted the invitation to do that. And after I spoke in his church, he was very excited about the teaching and he said, now next Saturday we are having a leadership training conference. And I would like you to come and speak at this conference. Can you do that? And I accepted, and then he told me it would be five hours of teaching. And so uh, I went, I spoke to church leaders, and then this man came and he said, Oh, he said, you've created tremendous problems for me. And I said, why is that? He said, because now the people are saying, why did you ask him only five hours instead of five days? And so... Uh, next spring, I've been invited to come back, and he says that he will organize a very large conference, uh, and they've got a plans to rent a very large hall and to have hundreds of church leaders come for a five-day uh, training conference. So the Lord has opened that door for us. Um, this is another church where I preached um, This is out in the bush. Why they call it the bush? Well, they don't have many big trees. It's not the jungle. It's just the bush, and they have these shrubs that grow and a lot of grass that grows. Some of that grass grows taller than I am. Um, and it's a, it's a it's a difficult life out there for these people. Out where we were staying, they don't have electricity. They don't have running water and uh, none of the modern conveniences that uh, we have here and yet we find so many people there that are born again christians they love the lord they just haven't had teaching and uh, we want to provide the training for these pastors i thought you uh, ladies would like to see this this is an iron and they put charcoal inside the iron uh, and this iron is very heavy. It must weigh, I don't know, eight or ten pounds. It is really heavy. And they fill it up with the charcoal, and that's that's the way they iron. Now, this young man is a dynamic Bible teacher. He's 22, 23 years old, and really eager to learn the Word of God. And uh, everyone says, oh, you should hear him teach. He is just really dynamic. And he wants to learn. And he studies hard. He's eager to learn. And uh So it's going to be, uh, I think, a real joy to watch him as he grows in in the Word. Now this is on a bus. We got on a bus and we took an eight-hour bus ride. The interesting thing about this bus is we got on the bus and we're sitting there waiting for it to go and this man got on and he opened his Bible and he proceeded to preach for almost a half hour before the bus left. And he stood up there and he preached this message. And that's what he does. He goes to the bus station. He goes from bus to bus. He gets on a bus. He preaches a message. And people sit there and listen to it. This is great. We could do that in America, couldn't we? Probably not. Uh, One of the interesting things about Zambia, it is the only nation on the face of the earth whose constitution declares it to be a Christian nation. Now, we understand it's not a Christian nation, but what they are saying is, we are going to run our country on the basis of biblical principles. And as a result, if you study the current events of the nations surrounding Zambia. They've had civil wars, they've had all sorts of strife and problems, but Zambia hasn't, and I believe in large part due to the fact that they've had this orientation to basing their uh, nation on the Word of God. Also, it means that the Muslims are not free to advertise there. They can't be on television. They can't go out and have big campaigns. Now, there are Muslims there, but they're a very small presence, relatively speaking. You go to the nations around uh, Zambia, and they have many, many Muslims, and the more they come in there, the, uh, the worse it becomes for the people. But in Zambia... Uh, They have uh, a lot of Christian influence there. Zambia is what used to be known as southern Rhodesia. There's another place called Zimbabwe, which is northern Rhodesia, or used to be. And this is where the missionary David Livingston worked for 25 years. Livingston was... Great missionary, medical missionary, preacher of the gospel. He was a, an explorer. And he, he's one of my great examples. He served in Africa for 25 years. He went out, he preached the gospel, he lived among the people. He revolutionized missions in Africa. And I will tell you in Zambia, he is the only white man in their history that they have any regard for. The only one. Well, Livingston was there for 25 years, and after 25 years, he had not one convert. In 25 years, there was one chief who had professed faith in Christ, and then after a couple of years, he said, I don't like this, and he repudiated his testimony of faith in Christ. So after 25 years, Livingston has no converts. So from the human viewpoint, he is a failure. But from the divine viewpoint, ah, the man was a tremendous success. And the reason why is because of David Livingston and the letters that he wrote back to England, and because of the lectures that he gave, thousands of people went to Africa as missionaries. And as a result, millions upon millions of Africans are going to spend eternity with us in heaven because of the efforts of David Livingston. So you may think that you're not doing any good in your life because you don't see results. Well, just be faithful. Lord will take care of the results. And who knows, maybe your witness to one person is going to result in millions being saved. But uh, anyway, you go to Zambia, you can meet Christians. And they're very open about it, and they'll talk about their faith in Christ. And you meet these people who have nothing compared to what Americans enjoy by way of material things, and yet you find a happy people. And they praise God for what they have. And so I, I, I like going there. I like ministering to these people. They are hungry for the Word. And I really believe that if we can get some people who will go there and teach truth, teach the word of God that they'll grow and I think that we can begin to to really make a difference there But what happens, what we see as we go around the world to these different places is that the western missionaries who go to these different places, they bring in all of the western garbage that we have And so you turn on your television and you watch some guy that Preaches from this basketball stadium Uh, You you watch some guy that's in a glass church You watch these guys that have these Huge churches Where they've got ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people Or you go to almost any church here And, you know, they've got 45 minutes of music And 15 minutes of preaching At best And they they say that's church that's what the church is about and this is what we're seeing around the world now they're imitating the western church and I really believe there are a lot of positive people in the world positive to the word of God people who would like to grow but they don't know the difference and they don't know how to do anything different we need teachers we need bible teachers we need people who go and teach the truth So the Lord has uh, opened up opportunities for us to take the word to different places. And I hope, too, that uh, we're going to be able to encourage more men who have a doctrinal orientation to at least get out to the mission field once in a while. I'm so grateful for you that you allow your pastor to come to Ukraine a couple weeks in a year to teach in our Bible college there. And because of people like Robbie who who are willing to come and teach in our Bible college, it allows me also opportunity to go to some of these other places to to take the Word of God there. But we need to think about missions here in America. It's important. It's important for the church. And I think that uh, here's another area that uh, we see the, the American church. It's just failing. We spend so much money on material things, and we invest very little in missionary activity. And yet I believe that one of the reasons that God has sustained America and allowed us to continue to function as a a free nation is the fact that we are still publishing the Word of God in hundreds of languages and the fact that we still have missionaries around the world. But when we lose that, I think we're we're, we're going to be in so much trouble, uh, for there won't be any any more reason for God to sustain us as a nation. So be patriotic and support missions, okay. All right, so that's a little bit about what we're doing. We have any questions? Yes. This one, Darren. He also has a problem. He's an epileptic. We're sitting in class, and he he had a seizure, and I didn't know what was happening, uh, but a couple of the men there did. And they laid him out on the floor, and uh, he was passed out there for a while, and then he recovered and got back up. And, sat on the bench and started taking notes again. Uh, So, anyway, uh, pray for him. I think he's going to do a great job. Yeah, Alan. uh, I'm giving them very basics. And what I did uh, for those five hours was to uh, give them spiritual life truth, Okay, who is the Holy Spirit? What is His ministry in our life? And then, uh, talked about walking by means of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and so on. This was all new information for them. Okay, anyone else? Yes. They understand English. In Zambia, they have 72 languages in the country. Uh, there, there are six or seven major language groups, and then these others are smaller groups uh, out in tribes and so on. Most of the people will speak English. It's not exactly like ours. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to understand them. And sometimes, uh, particularly people out in the villages, they don't understand my English very well. And in fact, Stuart, who's this African pastor, and he speaks five or six languages, uh, even when he goes to the villages and speaks in English, he speaks with an interpreter. Okay. So, uh, but in uh, in the city, uh, the big city of Lusaka, I was able to speak without an interpreter, uh, at least to these leaders. Uh, but when I spoke in the churches, I, I did have an interpreter. Yeah. Did I get into it? I spent a lot of time with it, yeah. Uh, I spent a great deal of time going through this, and it was new to them. They had never heard anything like this. So, yeah, when I was teaching basics for the spiritual life, I. I really hammered that pretty hard. Please know that we do appreciate you and the fact that that you folks pray for us. And, uh, you know, when you you come up and say, oh, we've been praying for you, you ask about different situations that we've uh, asked for prayer about, this just is a tremendous encouragement to us. And I want to thank you for that. Um, And the Lord has been very gracious to us to allow us to do what we do. And uh, we're having a great time. But I recognize that we can't do this if we don't have somebody holding the rope on this end and if we don't have people who are supporting us on this end. And so I want you to know that we recognize that we're simply an extension of what this church does and that uh, we represent you. And So I want to thank you for uh, your part in sending the word of God, sending the gospel around the world. All right? Huh? Just close? All right. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great honor that is ours to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that we have such a gospel, such a good news to share with people, that they might be turned from darkness to light, that they might be rescued from the domain of Satan and transferred into the kingdom of your Son. I thank you, Father, that we have your word that we know is truth, that you've given us the privilege of communicating that truth to others. I thank you, Father, that you provided so that uh, we might take this word to many places in the world, and I pray that there might be fruit from this work, Father, as you would permit that to happen. I pray that we might see many men raised up who will teach the word of God, who will teach truth, who will teach grace. And, Father, I pray that we might see a renewed interest in missions in our churches in America, that there will be more who will be challenged to take the word of God to to other places, So I give thanks for the greatness of your grace to us. I pray now that you're going to watch over us as we leave this place. You protect us. Give grace that we might continue to proclaim your word freely in America. And give us grace that we can continue to assemble
0: together in freedom. And I would ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.